It's hard to believe that in a few weeks we're going to be in Ash Wednesday and therefore the beginning of the Lenten season. It was just two weeks ago that I put away, that we put away our nativity set and Christmas tree. And then we're already looking at Lent. And so it is a wonderful thing that Pastor Jack began the Bible study sermon series at the beginning of this year with this series on knowing Jesus. And it's a perfect way to usher us into the Lenten season, knowing and following uh, Jesus. So today, we'll be looking at uh, Jesus as the prophet, where last week you looked at, with Pastor Jan, uh, Jesus as the Savior. Today is Jesus as the prophet. We'll be looking at that through the lenses of the Old Testament uh, book of Amos, a little, little... Uh, book there in the Old Testament that's not usually studied, but we're going to do that today, a little part of that, and then the gospel according to Matthew, at the so-called triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, a text that is uh, one usually used for Palm Sunday, but there's a lot to be said about uh, Jesus as the prophet in that text. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we gather together for Bible study today. Almost gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, this beautiful day that you have made, and we rejoice and are glad in it. As your Spirit summons us in the name of Jesus Christ to gather in this time and in this, in this space, uh, to look into your word, uh, to be taught by you. Might your Spirit lead us into wisdom, by your wisdom, lead us into all truth, crown our efforts with your love. We pray, O Lord, for those who are on their way, that you would grant them your traveling mercies. For those not able to be with us, O oh Lord, we pray that you would extend your blessing upon blessing. I'm grateful for all who are here, for uh, their hearts and their eagerness, O oh Lord, to study your word. For you speak truth to us, O oh Lord, and we need your word. And so might you, O oh Lord, lead us, guide us today. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, and then put a marker or your finger on that text as we look at Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile, away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Then to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. 
When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All righty, so let's talk about uh, being a prophet. Being a prophet. How many of you are prophets? P-H-E-T-S, right? How many of you like prophets? We're still at P-H-E-T-S, not the P-R-O-F-I-T-S, right? What is the difference between being a prophet and being prophetic? How many of you are prophetic? Now, hopefully, in 10 minutes when I ask that poll again, everyone will raise their hand, right? There is a difference, although they're related, uh, of being prophetic and being a prophet. Moses, Abraham, Ruth, Rebecca, Queen Esther, King David, they were all prophetic in some way, but they were not technically prophets. Now, to be prophetic, to be prophetic in very simple terms, is to speak, to teach, to speak, to proclaim the will and work of God, to be prophetic. And so if you go to your loved one, to your neighbor, to your friend, and let's say they're grieving, or let's say they're wondering, what do I do? Um, what is God up to? Um, why is this happening? Um, what is the purpose of God's love? What's the purpose of gathering for a Bible study? Why does God want me to wait upon him? And perhaps you share a little bit of scripture or you share about your own testimony of how God worked in your life and so forth. What you're doing there is proclaiming the will and work of God. So to be prophetic, to be prophetic is to share the will and work of God. Now, hopefully, you're truthful about that, right? To be truthfully prophetic, uh, not to be falsely prophetic. To be a prophet, on the other hand is to be specifically commissioned and called by God for a specific purpose to declare the will and work of God for a particular time, for a particular place, for a particular purpose. So when we think of, of, of the prophets 
in the Old Testament, and there's one or two, or there's two in the New Testament, John the Baptist being the last one of the Old Testament prophets, and then Jesus being the par excellent uh, prophet. Who are some of your favorite prophets? Isaiah, yeah. Anyone else? Jeremiah, yeah. Folks at La Casa Glen like Jeremiah. Daniel, maybe. Ezekiel. Who's my favorite prophet? Do you all remember? Habakkuk, right? Habakkuk. Uh, so those, those prophets in the Old Testament, the so-called major and minor prophets, not because the minor ones are, are unimportant, but because their, their books are smaller, right? Amos being one of those, quote, minor prophets. So those technical the ones who are technically prophets, and then those who are prophetic. And I named a few of those. The matriarchs and patriarchs of the faith. And so let me ask again, how many of you are prophetic? All hands, hopefully, are raised. Hopefully, everyone is prophetic in some way. That you share, you declare, you proclaim. It doesn't have to be at a pulpit. It doesn't have to be with loud voice. But the the hope of God, the love of God is in you, right? The hope of God, the love of God is percolating you. You know you have some knowledge of God, some knowledge of Jesus, some knowledge of God's revelation of His promises for you, for others, for the world, and so forth. And so whenever you share that, whenever you proclaim the will of God and the work of God, you are being prophetic. Uh, And so the church, the whole church, can be said to be prophetic uh, in, its, in its proclamation, in its teaching. And so when you look at the, the uh, first question there in the questions for, for reflection, or I put there, quoting from Ephesians 4.11, where it talks about the gifts that He, that Jesus Christ, gave. The gifts He gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, Let me ask you this. How many of you are apostles? Raise your hand. Hmm, Okay. Maybe in in two minutes, everyone will raise your hand and you'll see how. Some prophets. Okay. We've addressed that. Some evangelists. How many of you are evangelists? Okay. Some pastors. Okay. One. Okay. Some teachers. Okay. There's a few, right? Now, let me ask you this. Let's put it in the adjective. How many are apostolic? Everyone should raise their hand. Because apostolic is to be sent, right? An apostle is one who's sent. How many of you, therefore, are apostles? There, see? Now, some, let's do this again, some prophetic Hey, everyone's hand should be raised. Some evangelistic. Evangelistic means good messengers, right? EU, the prefix good, and angelos, angels, messengers. How many of you are good messengers? That you have a good message to share? There we go. The church is evangelistic. What about this? Pastoral. How many of you are pastoral? right? Let's put it in practical terms. If you have a friend, if you have a loved one who's hurting 
and who needs a hug, who needs a prayer, who needs compassion, who needs a listening ear, you are pastoral. So hopefully all of us are. So let me ask again, how many of you are pastoral? There we go. And then, how many of you are teachers or teaching? Yeah, in some way you teach, right? So the, the scripture is right that some are called, are specifically commissioned to that office of apostles, right? Uh, after Acts chapter 1, when the 11 disciples who then became apostles then called uh, Matthias to succeed Judas Iscariot, and then they mentored others to be apostles, those were definite offices. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, specific office. Were there specific offices of prophets? Yes. And we're going to look at one of them, the prophet Amos. Were some evangelists? Yes. Some who were specifically commissioned and called by God to, uh, to proclaim at pulpits and so forth good news while the rest of the church is evangelistic. But there were folks who were specifically called to be evangelists. Were there some to be called pastors? Yes, you have three of them in your midst. But it doesn't exclude the rest of the body of Christ, the community, of being pastoral. Likewise, teachers. Are there specific ones who are commissioned to be teachers? Yes, here in this women's Bible study, there are specific teachers, right? Those who are small group leaders and so forth. Uh, not to the exclusion of the rest of the body of Christ, the community, to teach about the scriptures, to teach about the mission, vision, values of Jesus Christ, okay? And so, even as we think about the, uh, the office of prophet, the specific calling of prophet, and Jesus being the prophet par excellence, the exemplar of what prophet is, let's think about what we do and who we are. When it comes to human beings, those are not necessarily the same. What we do, being prophetic, being apostolic, being evangelistic, doesn't necessarily make us so. But in Jesus, we have the convergence of the two. What he does is who he is, and who he is, is what he does. He is prophetic because he is prophet. And he is prophet, and therefore he's prophetic. Make sense? Um, I've used this example before that if you were to stand in your garage, it doesn't make you a car, right? And so that's the same thing. So when it comes to human beings... There is a difference when it comes to the commission and call of God. Now, when it comes to our ethics, when it comes to living out our faith, we hope that there's a synchronization there, right? If we say that we're Christian, hopefully we're living consistently Christ-like and that our Christ-likeness is evidence of our of being Christian, being child of God, right? So in that sense, our identity... Our, I, our core foundational identity as child of God, disciple of Jesus Christ, follower of Jesus Christ, being a Christian, that identity of who we are hopefully matches what we do. And what we do matches who we are. But when it comes to the specific calling of our ministries, of our ministries, uh, 
there are specific folks who are called to be pastors and prophets and elders and deacons. But there is a dimension of the office to which the rest of the body is called. Some are called as deacons. We are blessed to have so many deacons in this church. But not to the exclusion of the rest of the body of Christ, the whole community of believers, 1,100 members of Village Church, of being diaconal. The adjective diaconal. What is being diaconal? Being of service. So even though we are blessed with, I don't know how many deacons we have. I mean, we have 24 active deacons, but there's many, many deacons. Once a deacon, always a deacon, right? The rest of the body is to be uh, diaconal, to be service-oriented. You get it? You right? Okay. So let's look at Amos now. Amos, uh, last week, uh, we all uh, heard from Pastor Jan in terms of the Bible study and her sermon this past Sunday on Hosea. Right? You all studied Hosea. And Hosea is a contemporary of Amos uh, in the 8th century uh, B.C. And they, both Hosea and Amos, were writing during the time of the divided kingdom. And I hope that this chart is, is legible. I wanted to put this chart here so that you could see the listing of the kings in the divided monarchy. Uh, prior to this chart, if we were to put one right above this, who is the king right before the divided kingdom? King Solomon. And before King Solomon is his father, King David. And before him, the first king of Israel, King Saul. Right? So Saul, David, Solomon, and then it splits. It splits between northern kingdom Israel, our capital city Samaria, where the Samaritans are from, and the southern kingdom of Judah, capital city, Jerusalem. So here's the two. And the first king there in the northern kingdom of Israel is Jeroboam. But that's not the Jeroboam that Hosea and Amos are writing, uh, not during his reign. It's Jeroboam II. So you have to go, I think it's seven from the bottom, Jeroboam II. Uh, on the northern side, on the southern side, uh, of Judah, it's during the reign of King Azariah, who's also known as Uzziah. Okay, so I wanted to put that out there because we don't want to confuse Jeroboam the first and Jeroboam the second. Even though in scriptures, when you look at the background of Jeroboam, they don't make a distinction between Jeroboam, they don't say Jeroboam the first or Jeroboam the second. They're, they will say Jeroboam son of. And then you then have to look at, okay, who's the son of, okay, which Jeroboam is that? Like, no, let's just put all the guessing aside. This is Jeroboam the second. Nevertheless, when we read about uh, Jeroboam the second, Second Kings uh, talks about this Jeroboam the second in a very, very succinct way and focuses on his sins that Jeroboam II was no different than Jeroboam I in terms of his heart uh, following God and so forth. And that's the very short biography that we get of Jeroboam. We also get this little snippet that this Jeroboam II, the one who's, the one who's ruling and reigning during Amos and Hosea, uh, was able to annex a part of Syria. Now, 
what was happening during this period. There was relative peace. There was relative peace. There was a little Assyrian invasion, but that invasion was stopped. But this is not the big Assyrian invasion. You know, when we talk about uh, the, fur, the, the wave of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians after them, this is not that yet. Hosea and Amos are writing uh, during a time when there seems to be relative peace. Things are going sort of well. And here comes Amos and Hosea, who are being regarded as killjoys. Because what Amos essentially writes, and Hosea does the same, is they are prophesying, they're telling the truth, about Israel, what Israel is doing and not doing, and it is being interpreted by a priest, in this case Amaziah, that his prophesying is treasonous and treachery. That Amos is speaking out against the kingdom of Israel and King Jeroboam II. He's speaking truth. And what is that truth? Just like Hosea, Amos, if you read the entire book of Amos, he lambasts and judges Israel and essentially says, you are worshiping other gods. You're not caring for, for the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the hungry, and so forth. You're not worshiping God in the right way. And it's showing. It's showing in what you're doing. That, remember this synchronization of who you are and what you do? If you claim to be the covenant people of God, your identity, who you are, then what you do matters. That if you claim to be the people of God, the covenant, the covenant people of God, then therefore you should care for those who are vulnerable. You should care for right worship, but you're not. And one of the ways that God will sort of wake you up, hopefully, if you pay attention, is there is a coming invasion. The Assyrians are coming. Now, Amaziah, this priest who we know little about, Amaziah critiques Amos in this text, which is our text today, where he essentially says, first, Amaziah tattles to the king and says, oh king, guess what? There's a troublemaker, and this is what he's saying against you and against Israel. In essence, he's a traitor. And so Amaziah then goes to Amos and essentially says to him what? Oh, seer, go. Go away. Preach elsewhere. Go to Judah. Go to the southern kingdom and bring your message there because we don't want that. And so what does Amos do? With great conviction, he then directs his prophesying to Amaziah himself. Now, why is Amos so convinced and so convicted in his heart of hearts that he's right? How many of you would like to be a prophet? 
No. You see, no one in the Old Testament, and here we're going to include John the Baptist, because as I said, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though he's in the New Testament, but he's the last, he's considered the last of the Old Testament prophets before Jesus comes on the scene. No prophet, no true prophet, that is, ever volunteered to be a prophet. No one ever rose their hand and said, nominate me. Let me go to the Iowa caucus and to the New Hampshire primaries because I want to be a prophet. No one raises their hand. In fact, if there's someone who's an eager beaver who wants to be a prophet, those are the, those are the ones to be suspicious about. But no one wants to be a prophet. No one volunteers themselves to be a prophet. Why? Because remember what a prophet does. A true prophet, that is, declares the will and work of God to the risk of their reputation, to the risk of their own neck, literally. Remember John the Baptist? Queen Herodias asked his head on a platter as a birthday gift, right? You don't want to be a prophet. But when God interrupts your life, you have to. And the little bio that we get of Amos in Amos chapter 1 verse 1 is Amos was a shepherd in this little village about um, five miles south of Bethlehem in the little village of Tekoa and then his life was interrupted. Jesus called him to deliver a message and to deliver that message truthfully. Now, to be a true prophet, to be a true prophet is to have two qualities at the same time. To speak the truth in love because truth without love is legalism. Love without truth is empty. Truth without love is legalism. Love without truth is empty. Amos has a message to share that was revealed to him by God, and it must be declared. Now, why must it be declared? And why is he convinced in his heart of hearts that he's right? Because God delivered the message to him. And notwithstanding what the king says, and what the king's priest says, this must be said. He's backed up by his contemporary Hosea. And so, in his heart of hearts, and he says here, and he answers Amaziah, look, I'm no prophet. In fact, I, he said, I'm not even a prophet's son. I'm a herdsman. In other words, he's saying, I didn't even want this job. Right? I didn't even want this. It's not that I want to be the killjoy. It's not that I'm so eager to, you know, to blast the king and to, and to critique his reign, but I have to. Why? Because my allegiance, our allegiance is to who? To the Lord God. Right? That's what he's doing. And so he says, and so the rest of the, the, rest of the text there is, he then puts the prophesying, the judgment on Amaziah himself. Now, 
it's a harsh judgment that he, that he declares on, on Amaziah and his household, right? Your, your wife will become a prostitute. Your children will, will die by the sword. Your land will be, you know, talk about eminent domain. Forget about it. It's going to be parceled out line by line. I mean, it, it's, it's like it's this slow thing. You're going to see your land go away. I mean, talk about playing Monopoly. Build hotels on boardwalk. Forget it, Amaziah. You're going to see those hotels taken away. Have you ever played Monopoly and you think you're like Mr. or Mrs. Monopoly and you have all of the, you have all your reds and your greens, like, okay, I'm on top of the world. And all of a sudden, from nowhere, here comes the other one of your uh, fellow uh, uh, competitors there, and then all of a sudden, oh, the hotels are, are, are wiped out. My, my sons, especially my, my eldest, loves, loves when they defeat dad. And they take great pleasure in taking the hotel. I'm serious, and they, they actually, because I played Monopoly with my, with my cousins ever since I was a kid, and, and so when we played, and the, and the boys figured out how to, how to beat me. Like, some, you know, like my, my win-loss record at, Malo- at Monopoly now is like, it's diminishing. I, I still on occasion win, but when they take away the hotels and the houses, they actually, they don't wipe it like this. They take it one by one. And they say, see? They want me to feel the pain that I'm about to lose. So Amaziah, your land shall be parceled out. He is so convinced in his heart of hearts. We could feel for for Amos. That's what it means to be a truthful prophet. Speaking the truth in love. Does he love his people, his community, absolutely. He loves his Lord even more. He loves Israel because that's his people. He wants and desires for them to worship their God, our God, in the right way. He wants his people, his community, to live out their faith in the right way. This is, a, this is a prophet whose love is connected to the very heart of the love of God who called him and who called his people. That's why he cares so deeply. In contrast to Amaziah, who cares for his reputation with King Jeroboam. I said to La Casa Glen yesterday, you could tell a lot about a person or a community by how they treat the vulnerable, right? You could tell a lot about a person, about a community, about a nation in this case, of how they treat the young children, how they treat the vulnerable, the sick, older adults, and so forth. We tell our boys, you know, when the time comes and you're dating and courting and so forth, watch out for how your girlfriend and future spouse treats her parents. And if she has grandparents and her grandparents. It says a lot about their character. It really does. 
many, many, many years ago when I had a summer job at, uh, at United Airlines. So I was in seminary and I had a summer job at United Airlines in San Francisco, at the San Francisco airport. I was one of those red coat guys, the lobby receptionist who would direct people to different uh, uh, gates and where's the restroom type of person who points this way and that way. And there was one uh, young, young woman, um, a gate agent, um, who I asked out on, on a date. And Grace knows this, so this is not, you know, that's why I'm not afraid to say this publicly and it's being recorded here. And, uh, and <clears throat> she had, you know, brunette and so forth. So I asked her on a date, two, one or two dates. And we had picked up my, my, my younger sister. You know, I have a younger sister, 12 years, my junior. My sister was seated in the, in the back seat and Rebecca was seated in the, uh, in the passenger seat and I was pumping gas. I'm pumping gas, pumping gas takes about two, three minutes. My sister and I drove um, Rebecca home. So I asked my sister, Crystal, so, so how was it? You know, did, did, uh, you know, what did you and Rebecca talk about? And my sister said, nothing. I said, she didn't even say, she didn't ask you anything about your school or whatever. No. And my sister said, yeah, she just sat there. I said, oh, that's not good. That's not good. That's not good at all. Like, not even a hello or... No, she didn't say anything. My sister said, yeah, she seemed icy. Oh, red flag, red flag, red flag. That week, I saw, um, I saw Rebecca then start to sort of flirt with a, with a baggage guy. I said, eh, forget it. What my sister prophesied came to fruition. There's the truth. They're like, oh, okay. How they treat children says a lot about who they are. How one treats the vulnerable, how one treats children, older adults, those who are sick, says a lot about who they are. Amos is addressing that it doesn't quite match Israel. It doesn't quite match who you are and what you're doing. Amaziah is playing politics with truth that has no place in the covenant promises of God. You either tell the truth with love or you be quiet. And Amaziah has the platform, has the ear of the king, and uses it, unfortunately, for no good. So now let's switch over to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus uh, here, this is a very familiar text, the so-called triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, uh, a, a popular uh, Palm Sunday text as he goes into Jerusalem. People are all um, exuberant. Uh, we know that scene. It's been dramatized many, many, many times in church. Uh, palm fronds uh, lifted, people uh, uh, glorifying uh, Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, uh, uh, the instruction of you'll see him on a donkey, um, uh, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, right? That you will see uh, uh, the anointed one on a donkey uh, and the, the, the palm fronds indicating that there is a victorious ruler that is entering. Um, someone who comes uh, victorious from battle will often be on, a, on an animal, in this case, 
um, a donkey and that there would be uh, palm fronds that were there in order to welcome back uh, the victor. And so in one act, in one, um, in one scene there, um, there is a ascription and a, de- a description of Jesus being both the anointed one, uh, being victorious, as well as later on in verse 11, uh, prophet. Now, what makes Jesus a truthful, loving prophet? Well, what are the, uh, the descriptors of a prophet, right? A prophet is one, again, who speaks truth. Does Jesus speak truth? Yes. What is the truth that he continually preached and taught about? Love, right? Love God, love neighbor. Uh, this is what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, looks like this. Love loving service. And then he'll demonstrate this, of course, washing the disciples' feet, and then fully and finally at his death on the cross, and then the resurrection. So he speaks truth, but he speaks truth with love, Um, the deep love that God has uh, for his people and for all those whom uh, God redeems. And so the crowd says, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Why do they ascribe to him that title? You are the prophet. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus goes to his disciples and says, uh, some say, some say that I'm Elijah or Jeremiah or the other prophets. Who do you say that I am? Now, why is Jesus connected to folks like Elijah or folks like Jeremiah or those other prophets? Why is he lumped into those specific ones? What is it about that? How would the the community there in the New Testament, how would they have heard and regarded Jesus uh, with respect to the Old Testament prophets? Right? They would have connected him to someone like Elijah, to someone like Jeremiah to someone like Ezekiel and Daniel and so forth, in their catalog, in in the Israelite catalog of history, of their own tradition and culture and, and religious teachings, those prophets had a pivotal role, right, in the life and history of Israel. Like Amos, like Hosea, like Jeremiah, like Elijah, They were the ones who put their neck out on the line. They were the ones who spoke the truth in love, who spoke truth to power. And oftentimes, not every time, oftentimes, their prophecies would have a future-oriented dimension. Thus saith the Lord, God is going to. Thus saith the Lord, this is what's going to happen. Does Jesus do that in his teaching? Is there, a, is, there a, is there a future orientation to his teaching about love? To some extent there was, right? Uh, this is what will happen. Uh, he gives, uh, uh, talks about parables, shares parables and stories that at first or second hearing it seems nebulous, Right? And so he does have a future orientation to his teaching, and it doesn't come quite to 
full clarity until the crucifixion and definitely not until the resurrection, right? He's preparing the disciples' hearts for here's what's to come. He gives little clues and so on and so forth. But he is, he is the exemplar prophet, but he's a distinctive prophet. How is he distinctive? Whereas the other prophets were there to persuade, Jesus doesn't need to persuade. He's there to convict. He doesn't need to plead to say, believe me, believe me, believe me, believe me. That's not his way. His way is not to persuade. His way is to tell the truth in love and entrust to the Spirit to convict. That's why Jesus' ministry goes from town to town. He tells a story here and there, right? He'll maybe ask a question here and there, and then where does he go? He goes either to the next town or more oftentimes, he goes off to pray to the mountain, to Gethsemane, or he'll take a nap, right? That's his way. He'll preach, he'll speak the truth in love, and then he'll go on to the next, and the rest of the disciples are like, well, where is he? Where did he go? Oh, he's over there. Let's chase after him. And then he's telling a story here or there, maybe having a little meal here or there, you know, with the so-called sinners and so forth. And then he goes away. And where's our teacher? Oh, he's over there. And that's how his ministry, because he's not there to persuade. He's there to tell the truth for a season, and then he goes. That's what makes him a distinctive prophet. And he's a distinctive prophet because his final message is that the anointed one has come and he's right here in front of you. And so, Jesus, the prophet, calls his, calls his followers, calls the church to be prophetic. Now, the crowds had it one quarter right. He is the prophet, but he's not only prophet. He's Lord, he's Savior, he's Son of God, he's all those things. But for our purposes uh, and for this part of the, of the series, Jesus the prophet, he's the exemplar prophet who calls his people to be prophetic, to speak the truth in love even when it hurts, even when others oppose. We are to speak the truth in love. Amen. All right, I think we have about 10 minutes for Q&A if anyone would like to engage this text and uh, ask questions or good questions. So Karina was asking, um, are there any women who are, who are prophets? Who are, who are prophets? Anna is one of those. Um, in, the, in the book of Joel, right, Joel chapter 2, one of the, uh, one of the prophets, right, he uh, talks about that the... Um, uh, you know, why don't we just go straight to Joel rather than me guessing. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. This is the same thing that the apostle Peter will quote at Pentecost. Then afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female slaves. In those days I will pour out my spirit. So Joel even says that in the Old Testament, and the Apostle Peter will say that at Pentecost. So we can presume and infer correctly that there were women and are women who are prophesying the truth of God. Now, do we have uh, female prophets named in, in, in here as in book of so-and-so? We don't have that, but we do have folks like Anna who are identified as prophetesses who are prophesying um, in that way. So Ruth and Esther, uh, they were prophetic. They were prophetic, but not in the formal sense prophets. They were not in a formal sense prophets, but they were very prophetic uh, in, in declaring the, the will and work of God. And I think Kim, Kim has a question. Uh, Neil, you said that Jesus speaks truth with love, and he trusts in the Spirit to convey. Can you talk a little bit about how the Spirit to convey to convey and to convict, yeah. yeah, to convey and to convict. So uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus and the Father, right, they're all in sync of what they do. And so what the Spirit teaches, Jesus teaches. What, the, what Jesus teaches, the Spirit teaches. So as Jesus delivers and shares, proclaims the Word of God, the message of God, uh, the Spirit from where we don't know where the Spirit works, right? The Spirit, the Spirit impresses upon the heart and illumines the mind of understanding of what Jesus is doing. Yeah. I should add, by the way, that's also what the Spirit does with the churches, with our teaching, isn't it? With our teaching and our proclamation. Um, I've been asked many, many times about um, what happens if I've been praying for my son, my daughter, my, my grandson, granddaughter um, to follow Jesus, right? For a long while, I've been praying for them a long while, but yet I don't see evidence that they're, you know, that they're uh, following Jesus or that they care about Jesus. And my pastoral counsel has always been just be faithful with your witness, right, of how you're living as well as those nuggets those, those points and places that the Spirit might prod you, maybe at a Thanksgiving family dinner or something, where you offer that right word at that right time, and the Spirit will do what the Spirit does. I so firmly believe in that word in Isaiah, I think Isaiah 55, right, that the word will not return void, that it will accomplish the purpose for which God has sent out His word. And it's because of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who will impress upon and convict the heart in some way that we can't see right away. Good. Okay. All right. Bless you all when you uh, go off into the small groups, and why don't we join our hearts together in prayer. Oh, Father, thank you um, that you uh, provide um, to us um, as a community, and indeed for the world, O oh God, you uh, provide your prophetic word. You call your people, O oh Lord, all of us, to be prophetic because you have shared your truth in Jesus Christ to us and for us. Thank you, God, for caring for our spiritual health. Thank you for abiding with us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your servant Amos of long ago and for modern-day prophets and prophetesses who speak and share the truth in love. Help us, O oh God, to, uh, to do the same, 
the truth that you have imparted to us, that you have revealed to us, that you're teaching us each and every day, that your spirit, O Lord, would shape and form our hearts and minds after the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we might offer and share your truthful and loving word um, to our loved ones and to a world that so desperately needs it. Father, might you bless my friends here as they go into small groups, for we pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the prophet, indeed the Lord and Savior. Amen. God bless everyone.